told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? I'm talking to you, young man. You want to answer me when I'm talking to you. You remember who puts the friggin' bread on the table around here, don't you? Stan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids are eating. My boy isn't all the kids. You want to know where this is going, Billy? In the garbage. Right into the friggin' garbage. Now, you got any smart mouth about that? No, it's any worse than the books you keep in your dresser. Those ones under your underwear. Those sex books. Stan, you didn't have to hit him. Not only do I find out he's reading this crap, he's a goddamn little snoop as well. No, what about that? Come closer, please. I've something to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? You are invited on a guided tour of the world of darkness. Your nightmares become reality. Bloody Black Rum Podcasts and Halloween. Welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColtSplitation.com and I'm joined my co-host Martin. How's it going? We are back with our Anthalloween specials. Uh, we've been doing Anthalloween all month long in September and then now it's October and Ooh. we're still doing Anthalloween because... Officially in the spooky season. Yeah, it's a spooktober time. We're actually doing... <laughs> We're actually doing the month of Halloween now. We're into it. No, we started. No, we did that last year. What's that? A month of Halloween. We did do that. Yeah, we actually did two months of Halloween because of all the Halloween movies. Uh, But this year we've been doing Anthalloween, and it's a uh, it's it's a series that we do where we're working through the decades, uh, doing anthology films, anthology horror films. been fun so far. We've done um, the Black Sabbath from Mario Bava. We did last week uh, Tales from the Crypt, the movie, which was a fun little um, series of uh, short films. And now this week we have one of, I would say, most horror fans' favorite anthology films ever. Uh, one that has everything, basically, yeah. Pretty much everything influenced by Tales from the Crypt for sure, influenced by EC Comics, uh, and also from it's got George Romero. Yeah, very respected people. George Romero as director, Stephen Tom King C- as writer, Tom Savini on effects. Yeah, Tom Tom, Sav- Tom Atkins. Yeah, I mean you can just keep going. Ted Danson. By the way, Ted Danson. What is he like in his mid twenties in this? He's already got like a giant ball of gray hair. In us he chat. does, yeah, yeah. But um, obviously, if if you don't know what we're talking about now, turn the podcast right off. It's ridiculous. 
You should know. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Creepshow. Oh, you know what? It's because I said George Romero, not George A. Romero. That's uh, why that would throw you off. You God, didn't you know. get it from that. That's different. right. Somebody else with a different sad right. card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about Creepshow. Um, we had actually said last week that we we're not doing Creepshow. No, no, no. Not we. Well, I did. You did. I made a mistake Mr. on the timeline. Mr. Horrorbuff. And I made a mistake on the timeline. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just decided, you know what? We're going to do it anyway because it's... We're, we wanted to stick with the timeline, basically. We wanted to go with earliest to latest. So, Also, we just like throwing weird random things at you. So, Oh, um, before I forget, plug here. Um, we did a show for the J Movie Talk podcast. Again. Again, as we did last time with um, the Friday 13th Parts 1 through 3 trilogy. Uh, we're returning to that show uh, with Phantasm 2. So... Uh, I don't know exactly when it's going to release, but we did do an episode for them. So keep an eye out for that. J Movie Talk podcast. Thanks for having us on there. It was a lot of fun. Always a pleasure. Even though Martin didn't enjoy the movie. You win some, you lose some, you know? Listen, we're not all going to be winners. It's true. Man, it's been a busy October already. I know. And it's only day two. (laughs) It's going to get busier. Uh, Yeah, so Creepshow. We've, um... We wanted to do Creepshow for a little while. It's a really fun movie. It's um, one of those movies that um, is a really big cult classic. And it's, it is a cult classic in a lot of ways because of how many just big names are in it. And we mentioned a few of them already. But not only that, it's also the, uh, d- the direction of, of the film, the cinematography, um, the photography, the lighting. All of those kind of go together to create a perfect storm of an anthology film that follows in the footsteps of Tales from the Crypt from 1972, along with the EC comics of the same name, Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and um, and Creepy. Many of those anthology series of comics from the 50s um, were really influential to this film. And you can see that directly in the photography of the film. I'll say, not to, well, it's going to lean on how I feel about this film more so than the Tales from the Crypt. But I will say, um, this film, done at the right time, the technology's there to do, like, uh, the ideas. I'm sure they probably wanted to do in Tales from the Crypt, but probably couldn't execute as well, like the nice, like, comic book style paneling and artwork. Um... It's kind of like, if you thought Tales from the Crypt was good, well, you know what? We're going to do it even better, because we, we can now. Yeah, I mean... The, mean, the means is there. I mean, you definitely see the inspiration from Tales from the Crypt. Um, then again, the idea behind it was actually to make a movie that is like a comic book. I mean, and that that is in itself a way that... Um, makes this movie stand out from some of the other anthology films because it really does resemble a comic book in that um, almost heavy metal comic book, like yeah, you know, yeah. artwork. And and not only that, it's not afraid to go um, to be a little bit weird with its lighting and things like that, um, where it doesn't necessarily match real life. Like I would say that sometimes when you're attacked by a beast, the the lighting doesn't just immediately go red and blue around you. But are you sure? I've that's never how, had it happen. That's so maybe. how I know in my life if things are. Uh, if I'm about to run into trouble, if all of a sudden 
things just turn completely the, blood. And, and then there's like a little um, lightning bolt behind your head. Yeah. Like, no way. What's happening? Yeah. Um, I've never had it happen to me, but I'm assuming that that doesn't happen when you get attacked by a bear or something. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that the the idea behind the aesthetics of the film is something that has really um, – uh, really – made a lot of people appreciate this movie um, because it is so different from, from other anthology films and because it really does match comics. And if, especially if you read the EC comics uh, comic books from the fifties, the, um, the color scheme and everything is really, really similar. And it's, it's a great, and not only that, but then they also imitate that artwork um, throughout the film. As you see the comic being kind of paged through um, that gets thrown out of the house by Tom Atkins, that asshole. They're committed to the theme. That's right. It is a, a theme, heavily theme-based movie. And after our little beer talk session, we're going to get into that in in-depth detail with each of the stories in the film. So There's five of them. There are five of them. Five of them at two hours long for this film. Uh, on the longer side of an anthology film, um, most anthology films don't run two hours. They try to get in and out with like four stories at 20 minutes a piece. Um, but no, Creep Show, a little bit different. Um, so before we get into all that, just want to bring up the beer talk that we've got on the show today. Um, as you know, we've been trying to stick with the fall themes for the Halloween uh, episodes. And we've only ever had Oktoberfest on the show so far. So we do need to change that at some point. But I know that I, today when I went out to get the beer, I just wasn't in the cider mood. So I didn't get one. But we, there is a possibility that we, we get a cider on the show every now and then for the next couple episodes. But today we have Half Acres Lagertown Oktoberfest on here. What a clusterfuck that can label is. It's a pretty intensive can, huh? This is like when... Someone goes to a renaissance <clears throat> fair and gets a tattoo. Or takes a hit of acid before, you know, before the renaissance fair. <clears throat> before strolling on then. Well, I've never really, I don't think I've had Half Acre before. Uh, neither have I. Actually, I've never seen any either beer around here. It's, yeah, it's not very, not very common. And let's see, where's it from? Chicago, Chicago Illinois. That'd be Good why. old Chicago. That'd be why. Yeah, we don't get a lot of those around here. Um, and like like you said, I, I have never seen it before. Um, however, I do think that they they make a pretty good Oktoberfest. This Lagertown Oktoberfest is a pretty straightforward American Oktoberfest. I'd say a lot more hop forward. Mm. Definitely got a hoppy bitterness to it. Yeah, the malts are paired back a little bit. And I would say that the Lager Town element to it is pretty accurate because it has a very light mouthfeel. Um, light, it, and it's only about 5.7%, which is about maybe a little under average for an Oktoberfest. Um, but I think it's pretty good. I definitely think that this, it's, not, it's probably not one of my favorite uh, Oktoberfests um, because I, I prefer those heavy malt notes forward in my Oktoberfest. But I do think it's a pretty good beer. Um, 
Drinkable, very drinkable. Yeah, yeah, very drinkable. And it is one, if you've uh, heard us talk... Compared to our last episode, the left hand. Yeah. Not not the last... Was it the last one? That wasn't the last one. Uh, That was the one before. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, compared to that one, which is very um, malt heavy, and it becomes like almost too rich to drink at a certain point, uh, this one is uh, much more drinkable and sessionable. The problem with the sessioning is that you only get four beers in the pack, because they're tall boy cans. And they're kind of expensive at four for four cans, so your session is going to diminish. I really hate that that's diminish. a thing. What doing a four, a four pack of cans? Yeah, you should never do that unless it's like a like some kind of like rich stout or yeah porter, like an old wine, something that no one's going to be sitting like I'm going to be pounding away at these. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why exactly you would do like a four pack of an Oktoberfest or something light like that. Um, so, it could even be like a double, like a double IPA, six pack it up. I don't know. More for less. That's what you want. More for less. Yeah. No, I do like it. It's very drinkable, very sessionable uh, compared to a lot of other Oktoberfest. It's it uh, it is pretty malty and sweet, but I do think there is a noticeable enough of a hot presence in it that kind of. Pairs that maltiness back because you do get that hop bitterness. Um, I do like it. Do you want to know the funny thing about when, as we've been doing these Oktoberfest beers on the show, you get to a certain point where you're like, yeah, it's good Oktoberfest. And that's it. Like that, <laughs> our, uh, our detail about Oktoberfest has slowly waned. Okay, so um, as we've done almost 150 episodes, probably 100 episodes have probably been some type of IPA. Um, I guarantee by episode 10, we were like, you know what? Tastes like an IPA. Yeah. It's hard. It really is. Uh, we're not like, we don't have the sophisticated palate. No one does. They're lying to you. Mike Berbiglia and Orange is the New Black, when he's sitting there, you know, swirling his whiskey and scotch. He, did, he doesn't know. He's lying to you. One thing that I will say is that the biscuity flavor of this one is lessened. Compared to the left-hand brewing that we had. Oh, absolutely. It's bready, but not biscuity. Less. Less biscuit. I think I prefer more biscuit. But that's the only way that I can, like... You should drink yourself a nice porter. Yeah. That's the only way I can really vocalize the difference between these beers. This one's less biscuit. You know what we should do? We should do, like, a live podcast when we're at Beer Fest. Trying all the beers and just be like... Yep. It's pretty good. It's good. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, it's like an IPA. Awesome, man. Anything else to add? Yeah, just well, taste. I can tell you that we wouldn't be able to do a live show because this is what you'd hear. Well, we'd have to do it in the little little break corner that they got set up. I still think you would just get like so much back noise, back noise and people throwing up and... <laughs> Yeah, we'd have to do it with uh, Red Robin afterwards. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the, the Red Robin annual Red Robin festival, or you know the Midas. All right, let's talk about Creepshow. We got five stories to get into, and I got a lot to say about each of them. So, ooh, mm. let's start with the beginning. Start with the beginning. The wraparound story. The uh, the um, oh, you know what? And I was thinking when I was watching it, I was like. I'm going to need to remember this term because I always forget it when I'm talking about it, and now I can't remember what it is. 
Wow. But so helpful. The term is rap is basically so it's the wraparound story. Hey, you say that every time. I know, and I now I forget the actual term for it, but it's okay. Ring around the rosy. Yeah, the wraparound story. It is a story that actually sets. It's sort of like meta, right? Because we're we're watching this wraparound story, and then uh, Stephen King's son is um, actually the kid that plays that's that's um, in the the wraparound opening part. And he is Joe Hill, although in the credits you'll see him um, credited as Joe King. It's a nice little tidbit of information for you that I actually did not know until I watched the credits yesterday. I will say, too, because we weren't alive for them. I mean, I know, like, especially in the 80s, they were pumping out fucking Stephen King movies, like, left and right. In my mind now, I think about it, it's like, it's hard to believe, like, man, he's been around for, like, 40-plus fucking years. Yeah, he's been around for a long time. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. so like 82 is like, you know, like he's still like, we're still climbing. We haven't gotten to prime. Like, you yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and the other thing is that, you know, a lot of times Stephen King's movies are really just adaptations of his stuff. There's not that many Stephen King movies that actually he wrote. Right. So like he'll allow his, his, the name of the, in the, and the, the storyline of his films or of his books to be made into film. But he doesn't normally write them or adapt them to screen. But Creepshow is actually one of those films that he wrote, and um, they're not really based on any storyline. I mean, some of them are based on some stories that he wrote, but but these are really sort of original ideas for this for the film. None of them are based off of. Uh... Um, I don't. I don't know. I I don't believe so. Um, not that I can think of. I can't think of any off the top of my head that were. That I can think of as that were actually stories that he wrote. But um, it's possible that I'm wrong. It's completely possible I'm wrong. Um, but I just can't think of any. I can't think of it at, off the top of my head that there were. Um, however, the first wraparound part of that film is uh, it involves his son, Joe King, who is playing a, a little kid who's reading an, an EC Comics-like comic book. And Tom Atkins plays the dad, and he's just fucking pissed off that he's reading a comic book. Which, the best part about all of this is, out of all the people not to have a credit in the film, Tom Atkins is one. And I told Ryan, the reason is, everyone does, you don't need Tom Atkins to have a credit, because everyone knows Tom That's Atkins. Tom Atkins. You don't need a credit. It's kind of like if you were to see John Saxon in a film at this point. Do you need a John Saxon credit? Like, Here's John Saxon! You would just rather have it be, like, the credit being, like, Tom Atkins' hair, played by... Yeah, which toupee? His hair is atrocious in this. <laughs> Absolutely atrocious. I can't believe you didn't notice it. Like, like when he really moves at the time, like his, hair, like his hair is like moving around. I'm curious now if anybody, like... Because the version that we watched for Creepshow uh, was the Scream Factory edition, which is pretty much... Blue, a defin- right. Yeah, the, it's <laughs> pretty much the definitive edition of Creepshow right now. And I, there's like four audio commentaries on it. I'm questioning whether anybody mentions it in one of those. Audio I don't think he really was wearing a toupee, but you like, just think like the, the the shape of his hair at that time. Yes, was, because it's got that you know like hmm. we're coming on the 70s, but we're still holding on to some of the things he's got. That it's just very unsettling. And As so, you said, he he almost does look like um, Dennis Farina, or, yes. even, or even in some ways Burt Reynolds. Yeah, like a blonde-haired yeah. like Dennis Farino yeah. or Burt Reynolds, yeah. Yeah, 
I guess I did. I didn't notice it too much, but yeah, you're right. His hair does look a little weird. It's also funny because Tommy Atkins at that time was not that old. And he's got a nice silver going on. Everyone does it. Like I said, Ted Danson's like not even 30 yet. And he's got nice, you know. Wisps of silver. Even if he is 30, again, his chest hair is like half of it's gray. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got a lot of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, So in the opening, yeah, Tom Atkins is pissed about the comic book because he's saying, you know what, kid? You're going to read Penthouse like the rest of us in this house. That is great. The only I will say that is like a great, like uh, kind of like Romero type like t- line, of like the kid being like, "Well, you're fuck, you got nudie magazines, you know." Yeah, and he's like, "You little shit." <laughs> and I like how the mom too is just, just like, sort of like, "Honey, guys, don't fight. You know, let him read his comics. That wasn't very nice." And he's, he, you know, Tom Atkins is basically like the abuser that you don't really actually see abuse. Because he's like sitting there drinking a beer, well, the way we pouring see, it out into a fucking glass. Well, the way we see you know, later on in the film, like from one of the later stories, uh, you know, spousal abuse or abusing women, it's just it happens. Yeah, that so, happened in the eighties. Yeah, so you know, it's just like, yeah, part of the normal everyday family marriage strife. But I do like. Wait, did you say he has, he has a Narragansett? Is that what he's drinking? I don't know if he, it is. I was trying to look, but the label is kind of obscured, so yeah. apparently they didn't get paid like they did with Jim, Jim Beam. Uh, but I would assume it's a Gansett. Yeah. Uh, just because of Stephen King being from the New England could area. Could be, could be, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see it. I would think it. it would be, it'd be some kind of Pittsburgh beer. Because, you know, Romero doesn't leave the Pennsylvania area when he's shooting, so. But yeah, Tom Atkins pours those out. Yeah, it was great. You he know, pours he, those beers in his glass. Like, you know, cranks it open. No, normally, you know, your everyday spousal abuser just cracks open a can and starts going to town on After it. After you but, crack your woman's head open, yeah. you crack a beer open. But you know what? In this case, Tom Atkins, he's a little bit classier than that. Well, you can tell he by grabs his sweater glass. and his buttoned-up shirt. Yeah. For the classy abuser. And you know what? Shame on most of all, as we joke all about this, and... Shame on him for pouring that big of a head on his beer. He just wasted half his beer. You uh, take offense to his pouring mechanism that he's got. Yeah, we don't get to see it, but afterwards you see like he's got like a 12-ounce glass, pours only like six ounces of it and like four of its head. And he's like, honey, please, the child needs discipline. He needs to read the penthouse. I was trying to think of a night, a funny name for uh, where he could... We're a spousal abuser shops for their think, sweaters. But. As I say, do you think he's reading Penthouse or do you think he's, uh, you know, looking at Hustler? Hustler's a little more lower end, you know. Like, mm. It's definitely not Playboy because he's not, you know. That's the articles, man. You read Playboy for the articles mm. and the Stephen King fiction. Penthouse, you read for the spicy letters. And Hustler is just dirt. You just look for the. You want the luridness. You just want. You want. You want the penetration shots. <laughs> That's what you want. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he's. I think he'd be middle penthouse. That's why I say penthouse. He's a good Christian man. Yep. He wants no. those. He wants those spicy letters. To be like this is what my life could be. Instead, I've got my wife ironing my pants, my khaki pants. <laughs> so. So the wraparound story kind of ends uh, there, where he's sort of throw. Um, oh, we forgot to mention too the the best part. 
It fucking takes place on Halloween. Oh, does it? Yeah, there's jack o' lantern in the window. It's Halloween. Dude, that doesn't mean. No, I mean I don't mean specifically it's Halloween night, but I mean it takes place around Halloween. You forgot to mention the most dis- disturbing part. That comic book is apparently a first edition collector's edition. And Tom Atkins has the fucking gall to roll it up like a goddamn newspaper. Ruin it, and then he eats it out the yeah ruined the door. It. Um, Joe King could be you know rolling in money selling that years later. I I cast a pristine creep show comic. Nope, ruined. Day one, ruined. Interesting to note too that the creep show, uh, I guess the character, the icon, that's part of the comic, sort of looks like the crypt keeper from Tales from the Crypt. Well, no, that makes sense because the whole comic it's like it says creep show on, but all the artwork and all the toy looks like it's Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, so it's just like yeah, hey, we kind of get the naming rights. Well, in Tales from the Crypt, I don't know that they actually had a crypt keeper like that. That kind of looked like the Crypt Keeper from the show. So I'm, I just think it's interesting that the, the, the ghoul in this one does look a lot like the Crypt Keeper later on. No, it makes sense. Just fun. Because like I said, this is basically a Tales from the Crypt movie, but didn't get the licensing right. Yeah. It, so. I do like um, when he, the ghoul appears at the window. He's like, hey! He's like Frosty, or like Jack Frost, appearing at the window, like, hey, I'm here! You know, I'm here, don't worry oh, about a, it. that's a Christmas horror movie we'll have to do one of these days. Jack Frost. Yeah, starring Michael Keaton. Should we go right to the, should we Should we finish this wraparound story first, even though it... Yeah, because it leads into the pretty, pretty awesome opening credits. With the comic book, you know, artwork, and, you know, the title coming up and yeah, it's, it's all comic and, it's great i love yeah. i love like how you get the paneling artwork and stuff like that f- throughout all of the film but the the opening shots and especially like as you go transition between the stories when you're turning the comic pages um pretty great use of of that mechanic to get between story to story and you'd see all like the little ads and then yeah. It's great seeing too, like how each story, like when they start and they, you know, finish, like them, like as they were in the comic panel. Yeah, it's a really, good, gr- really great use of it. It's a good, good mechanic. So the end of this uh, little wraparound story, as we get out of the comic and back into the real world, is um, showing that uh, a couple of garage or garage, a couple of garbage men. One of them being Tom Savini himself. Don't know if you noticed that either. Yeah. That's a pretty hard cameo to miss. No, well, I mean, it is and it isn't, but... It looks like Tom Savini. Yeah. And he's acting like Tom Savini. Hey, what's this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tom Savini and another garbage man are picking up trash on the side of the road. Although they look sort of like hobos rather than garbage men. I don't know, they're like 20 houses behind the way. They're like kind of like bopping around. Yeah. And they pick up the comic and they notice that the voodoo doll advertisement is missing its coupon. So it's a good precursor to what happens next with Tom Atkins getting up. He's going to have a nice breakfast. He's he's sitting down with the with the paper. And he's going to have a nice breakfast. <laughs> Ryan just spilled his beer. I did. There goes $5. I know. <laughs> And he's going to have a nice breakfast, sitting down with a paper. He's had a, he's had a neck ache all night, though. Stiff. Stiff. Doesn't know why. 
and his uh, wife sitting there ironing, ironing, you know, right next to him. I know. She's still ironing in the. Wasn't she ironing the night before? No, she was like sewing uh, oh. jeans. Oh, maybe I got that. Maybe I got that confused. I thought she. I was like, she's ironing both times. Yeah, no, she was morning sewing, and night. No, how many? Was, how much iron? How many? How? How? Uh, maybe it's wrinkled therape- is this guy? Maybe it's therapeutic for her. Like maybe if he attacks, she's got an iron in hand to. Could be. Could be. Bash him yeah. over the head. But no, she was sewing. Uh, sewing jeans in the nighttime, and now in the morning she's ironing. I gotcha. So, um, ultimately what happens is we kind of zoom out to, um... Little Billy, Billy Psychopath. <laughs> Billy, Billy Psychopath, who is uh, sticking needles into a voodoo doll, which is apparently the placeholder for his dad. Not not apparently, it is, because Tom Atkins is grabbing his throat and lurching about as Billy's upstairs going, Teach you to take my comic! <laughs> and he's just stabbing his... Stabbing him in the throat, and before you know it, he's going to be fatherless. He's going to wish he never did that. <laughs> no, he's not going to wish he never did that. He loves it. Now all he's got his mom go- all to himself. All over a goddamn comic book. So you know what that means, kids? Don't read comics. That's true. This little, end up Billy Psychopath. Yeah, this little shit's a little psychopath after reading the comics. Yeah, don't read the comics. So that's the wraparound story. That's the whole thing that puts Creepshow together. It's... uh. It 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 sort of emphasizes the meta aspect of, you know, he's reading this comic and then we go into the comic and then we come back out again. Interesting stuff. It's not meta because that wasn't a thing yet. Wow, it is now. I call it meta. All right, so let's get into uh, the first short that we got on this uh, film of five. Um, the first one is called. Um, I'm trying to think. What is it called? Bernie Sanders Raging Father Syndrome. That's right. That's what it is. Bernie Sanders Raging Father Syndrome. Now, it's called Father's Day. Um, and it, it uh, involves a bunch of rich hoity-toities. Almost borderline, are they New England or are they just English? Yeah. <laughs> you can't really tell, some, right? Because some of them are talking like they're like, you know, like out in the Berkshires. And some of them are talking like they're out in like Oxford. Maybe that's maybe that's from Stephen King's experience. He's just like, yeah, somewhere. yeah. But then again, like, look at the car too, and it sort of looks English, nice like, like Rolls Royce. Yeah, yeah. So ah, it's it's hard to tell. It's it's not really uh, not really too apparent. But um, the one thing that the thing that I like about this uh, first short is that it's so ridiculous and doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And even so. You're still okay to go along with it because the whole idea is kind of weird. It's just about them meeting for Father's Day and uh, there's a storyline about um, the crazy aunt who killed her father and she re- she visits his grave every single year to um, grieve over her, what, what she did. And, and so we get flashback sequences of this aunt uh, experiencing Father's Day past <laughs> of uh, – like Martin said, Bernie Sanders, who is pounding his cane on a table and bitching about his Father's Day cake. Now, the thing that I wonder about. Was that ever a thing? Yeah, was before, Father's before Day you cake. Before you them crappy socks and ties, it was cakes. Cakes a thing. Because I've never heard of it. I've never done it for my father. 
And he's also never beaten me with a cane because I didn't give him one. Um, but I'm one. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, where did why 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 is it a cake? Where did Stephen King get this from? I don't understand it. But whatever the case, you can't really beat the guy just yelling and yelling. Where's my Father's Day cake? You're vultures. You're all a bunch of vultures after my money. Where's my Father's Day cake? The funny thing is that he's probably right. They probably are a bunch of vultures. Well, they're rich New Englanders, so yes. They're all they're all after his money. Um But other than that, the story doesn't really have much else going on. It's just about these people who are set up to be fodder for zombies that come back from the grave. Well, one zombie. One zombie. So the the shore is kind of in a way it, it doesn't really have much of a theme to it. And yet it's still a lot of fun because everybody takes it extremely seriously. And I think that seriousness adds a lot to it because then the seriousness plays up the corniness of it and you get a really good like smattering of both. And I enjoy that quite a bit from this the short. I know Father's Day is probably one of um everyone's favorite shorts from Creep Show. And uh I can see why. I like it. Um I will say out of all of the shorts they use like the comic book of paneling and effects, it uses it to a detriment. Cause this one more so than any of the other ones, they use consistently. And at times it's like, why the fuck are you doing that? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a transition or anything. It's just like, oh, we're going to add borders around Bernie Sanders going, Father's Day! Yeah, it's that's just, true. It's it's like the flashbacks get the borders. Like, um, you know, when they say, you know, earlier with a border. Uh, that's Not that's, even. Like, they just, like, if it's like, because, you know, as we see later on throughout the film, like, when, like, something spooky killer is about to happen. Like, yeah. there's, like, like, a comic effect. Even when there's moments like that not happening in this short, for some reason, they, you know, it's there. And I don't remember it being that prevalent in the film. And so watching this again, I was kind of like, really? I don't remember it being, like, consistent like that. Hmm. Yeah. And then but after this story, it does get, you know, more, does taper off. I wonder if they were just like, you know, this is the first one, so we need to... Experiment. Yeah, we need to really, you know, catch people with it. Um and get them understanding like the the it's comic book definitely aspect the shortest of too of the you think it's the shortest i think yes. the last one's the shortest it'd be either that or the last one the one with the cockroaches yeah, yeah i cuz they're I, both like barely 20 minutes yeah i i'm i think that the last one is the shortest but um yeah this one is not that long either and i think part of that is just because like the there's not that much to the plot it's it's literally just a revenge story of uh, You're just kind of wondering what's ed harris doing here yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Which in this, you know, Ed Harris, Ed Harris, the entire time, I was trying to put, I'm like, what does he look like? He looks like the fucking guy from Dawn of the Dead. Like, we got this, man. We got this by the fucking ass. Yeah, I like how he's just here, and and also, I I really like the random dance sequence in the middle of just like them swinging together. Um, again, like I said, all of this plot is sort of like non-existent. Doesn't really have anything going on. Um. You just know you're just basically getting the second hand character development of like, yeah, these guys are rich and they're assholes and 
Oh, he's not an asshole. No, he's not an asshole, but the rest of them are. And you're like, the, the oh, fucking man. mom's a total bitch. Yeah, like, maybe. when he's talking about his her daughter, she's like, hand me the scones, you hog. <laughs> look at her. She's, she's a, hog, a hog, isn't she, Hank? And you look at her, she's like, no, it looks like she could eat a few more. She's, you know, like. She's pretty skinny. Deathly pale and thin. She's, she's whipping around that dance floor. <laughs> yeah. Um,. But most of them are assholes. And, and that's, again, that's a sort of thing with Tales from the Crypt. You have those stories about, they're moralistic stories about assholes. And they get their comeuppets. And they're supposed to be like, hmm, maybe I don't want to be like those people. Do you want well, to be a ri- rich white asshole? Well, obviously, Billy should learn his lesson from reading these comics. He should, yeah. Um, it, the moral is, don't be a bastard to your father. That's true. He should, yeah, that's right. He should, he should have learned from this Father's Day comic, huh? Other than that, though, for Father's Day, there's not really that much else to say about it. I mean, it's a, it's a fun short. Um, it has its elements. It has uh, some scares and gore effects. And the next snap was awesome. The ne- yeah, the next snap is great. Ed Harris's death is pretty weak because he just sits there and watches the tombstone slowly. <laughs> yeah, fall onto him. <laughs> He's like. Uh, really fuck. And he's and just kind of the way he was acting. Like maybe if I don't move, it won't fall on me. Yeah, yeah he's, it just kind of slowly just, plummets off lo- the side. <laughs> Smash. Actually, and, and and instead, it's actually more of like a squish. <laughs> no, he even says in the su- subtitle, squishes, squishes squish. <laughs> yeah. Um. But other than that, I mean, that's it for Father's Day. It's not my favorite of the creep show stories, but it is fun and it does have its moments and. um it's definitely a sign of, like, most of these, they're going to be, you know, scary, but also we're going to have fun. Yeah. And they're, they're, you know, it's going to be, like, comedy Tongue-in-cheek, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the second story that we get is actually starring Stephen King. On cocaine. <laughs> On cocaine, yeah. Uh, it's called The Lonely Death of um, Jordy Vero, and it is basically led by Stephen King. Throughout the whole short, um, as he plays Jordy Barrel, a uh, lonely farmer out in... Some, somewhere out in New England. Yeah, so, somewhere. And uh, he ends up finding a, a meteor that crash lands in his, uh, his yard. And he envisions himself bringing it into the meteor department, where they give him... <laughs> At a, the college, yes. Yeah, a lucrative two hundred dollars. I just love that when he's daydreaming, he's like, "Go and give me two hundred dollars," and they're like, "We'll give you 50. He's like, "Keep counting higher than that." And like seventy five, like, "No, keep going." And they're just like sitting there, like rifling through the bills. He's like, "Yeah, that's it, two hundred dollars." When the highest you can think of for money is two hundred dollars. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a good scene though. And well, he's still got a phone from like the 1930s in his house. Not even a rotary phone. It's like an old like hello, you know. Yeah, and this is really a, you know, for Stephen King, who is not an actor, although he appears in many of his films. Um, this is an interesting development for him because it's really majority, majority, a majority of the time led by him as a character. There's only a couple scenes where there's another character in it. Well, it's only, there's only three. It's only him, then the, him daydreaming of the doctor, and then the brief shot of his father. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, a prestige drama for him, uh, playing this guy who accidentally cracks open a meteor and le- unleashes a 
extreme plant growth across uh, New England. Um, Early sign of Troll 2. That's right. Yeah. He lives in Nildog. Yeah, he does. Um, so, again, this one is another simplistic storyline. It doesn't have um, – it's not, it's not super complicated. It's not complex. Um, it really is just a lot of time lapse between when uh, Jordy cracks open the meteor and, and then the, the things that occur afterwards, uh, showcasing Savini's uh, effects with not gore but with um, plant-based stuff. It is unsettling, all like the plant growth and like the moss and especially like when he, he it gets further along and he's like got it growing as a beard mm-hmm. and uh, growing on his on his skin on like his chest and stuff. It's great too because at first when he's got like a little warts on his fingers after touching the meteor, as he said, "Meteor shit," best line in the whole movie. Yeah, his hand is going meteor shit. When he's like looking at the wart size thing, he's almost like, did I have these before? I don't know. I'm dirty. I'm a dirty farmer. Yeah. And then later, when he's like realizing he's got like moss on his tips, uh oh, shit. I sucked on my thick fingers. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what my mouth looks like. It's, um, I, actually, I think the most effective parts are when he's looking at his fingers. And he has those warts on it, and they're kind of, like, bubbling a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like, the most, like, body horror element to this film. So I think that's probably the most effective, but I think that um, the effect, the, otherwise the effects are really good, too. Um, and this is one that doesn't really uh, take too much advantage of the comic book coloring of the EC comics, where it has, like, the blues and, and uh, reds of the, um, the lighting. It's more so the greens, that are prominent through this. And that makes sense because it's all about the plants. Um, but it's more of a green uh, tinged short than the other shorts in this movie. And, and I think that sets it apart a little bit from the others. Um, again, I would say that this one is not my favorite. Um, I think it runs a little bit too long for what um, the plot offers. Which it's is just, funny because it's pretty short. <laughs> it is pretty short, but I, I do think that the plot itself, there's there's just not that much there. And so um, we're tasked with having Stephen King lead us through it, and I don't know that he's a strong enough actor. I mean, he's really playing the most cartoonish character that he can think of. He even got the nice 50s like cartoony sitcom music every time. He's like, oh, you lunkhead, you. Yeah. You know. That and like the sound effects as well that are straight out of like cartoons. Yeah. I like it. It's not my favorite, but I I appreciate it just because of how, you're right, Stephen King's not a great actor, but that's what makes it endearing to me is just how like fucking sweaty, sweaty, coked out of his mind he acts in this. Um, If you know about the, uh, the background behind this film, Tom Atkins actually originally wanted to play Jordy. And they were like, yeah, actually, Stephen King wrote that, and he's going to play Jordy. So you'll have to pick something else. So ultimately, from the get-go, Stephen King already was like, yeah, I'm going to play Jordy in this film. He probably wrote because he was like, I want to be a country bumpkin asshole. Yeah, probably. He's like, well, this is what he thinks. Oh, they're good-hearted, but they're a bunch of dumbasses. It's true. Who don't know anything. And as you said, he's got a lot of hair here. 
He's got a lot of... Uh, yeah, when you get to see... He's got a shit ton of back hair as he's, like, getting ready to go into the bathtub. He's got some of, like, the, you know, the peat moss growing on his back and stuff, but you can see, like, holy crap. This what is, is what when, a time to be alive in the 80s when people would just be like, oh, he's, yeah, he's just got hair. And this is when he had a nice head of hair as well. I don't know if it's nice. It's very, like, a greasy mop yeah, top yeah. that he's got. It's awesome. <laughs> but it is, you know... Like I said, I, I, you're right. It's definitely not the strongest story, but I do think it's ende- charming because it's so and endearing just because of how ridiculous. Because this one, I think more so than any of the stories out of the five, is supposed to be taken as like lighthearted until you get to the sad end where he's like Jeff Goldblum and the fly, like kill me. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's it. And when, even when he turns is- when he turns into the Grinch. <laughs> yeah, either the Grinch or the Grinch in the tree, like in in the Christmas tree, where he's pretending like he's t- taking it out of the the house there. Yeah, that's all I was thinking of when, like, at the end when he's fully covered, so he's the Grinch now. So that's how he came to be and why he's His so miserable. Heart was too small. Yeah. Um. So the next story in this film is something to tide you over. And I think this is my favorite of the Creep Show short stories that we get. It's this, definitely the best. This one is definitely straight out of a Tales from the Crypt um, comic. It has the grim murder element to it. And it has the... Um, supernatural. Yep, the supernatural. It's got the... Uh, the love triangle, which was often the case in the many, like, you know, the, the smitten lovers and, uh, that are cheating on one person. Um, so it's got that. Um, and then it has Leslie Nielsen in here with Leslie Nielsen playing a very straight character, uh, in terms of both like zero. I mean, he does actually give some jokes, but they're like on the dark side of humor. Um, and ultimately, he's playing it very, very straight. He's just a, you know, a murdering guy who loves to drink a tall glass of vodka ice and uh, watch his victims drown in the tide. And his bond layer. Yeah, he is like a bond-like villain because, uh, as you Hold said, your he's, breath, Mister Bond. He's like, yeah, he's like Jigsaw or uh, a Bond villain who has an intricate. Um, trap, trap, murder, murder, sat piece. Um, his work though. What's that? His work though. Yeah, it does. Like Bond yeah. villain. His is like a realistic uh, trap, like one that you could expect to actually work, and it's pretty brutal. Um, something to tide you over, I think, is you know, so a lot of the other stories are sort of comical in like how they play out. Something to tide you over, I've always seen as a, a short that is like actually pretty serious throughout most of its even though Leslie Nielsen is sometimes making cracks about these people drowning in the tide, it's a pretty serious and uh suspenseful uh short. And uh you can definitely see and, and I think Ted Danson plays it really well here too. Uh you can see the panic in him as the tide washes over him. And I wonder if that's part of that is actual real life of being buried at sea and uh, you know, having to shoot those scenes and continually flooded with water. Um, but I find that I find this a really effective short um, in terms of the tension that it generates, um, the empathy that you feel for the victims. 
Um, and then the you do get a little bit of the uh, the supernatural element um, towards the end. And uh, if you notice, all of the zombie characters have the same type of voice, like the gravelly, uh, waterlogged voice, um, which I like because they stuck to a theme here. They said, you know, all of the dead characters would sound this way, which I like. Um, one thing I have to point out is that I really like the tenacity that Leslie Nielsen shows by actually bringing a TV down from his house and stringing along a bunch of extension cords, apparently, to get it to work down by the beach. That's a, uh, that's a, t- a feat that I don't know that I'd go through. <clears throat> and someone in 1982 to be caring enough about electronics to be like, that picture quality looks a little weird. You might want to run a, you might want to run a maintaining tape through that VCR. Uh, <laughs> Check your coaxial cables there. They seem like they're not connected correctly. Just funny too, watching this on you know Blu-ray. <laughs> now when he's like looking yeah. at these you know old TVs from the you know late seventies, early eighties, being like, look at that picture quality. Oh, one thing that's like, yeah, it's big, big. One, one thing that I noticed is that when you're in Leslie Nielsen's house and he's watching the TV from the bed, he actually has like six TVs on the wall. Mm-hmm. The TV is like fucking twenty inches, and he's watching it from bed. Yeah, he's got a big screen TV. I was like, how can he even see that goddamn thing? It's like the best part. They didn't even make twenty inch TVs anymore. Those are computer monitors. Yeah, that's that's small. <laughs> Like, the smallest I've seen that was, like, a 32, and those are only, like, 100 bucks now. I know. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I was just, like, he's sitting in bed, and the bed is clearly a few feet away. I was like, in and our generation, old. we can't even see that shit I know. anymore. Like he's, and he's old. It's like, how is he able to see that? So far away. But I do like, I, I like the initiative that he had. He was like, you know what, this guy, I'm going to show him his girlfriend dying. I'm going to string together 20 extension cords to get it from wherever the generator is to this beach. You just got to think, too, like how much when he says he is wealthy, like he's got to be pretty wealthy to have all those TVs, all these CC, you know, CCTV cameras around his compound. He is a wealthy man. It's not like that. And and to own basically his own personal beach. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there's no one else out there. He's not concerned that anybody else is ever going to come to this beach and find these people buried. So, yeah, he's a pretty fucking wealthy guy. But I would say this is my favorite. Um, Leslie Nielsen is a treat here. I think he does a really good job as uh, playing the serious role. Um, It's not something that you see from Leslie Nielsen very often. No, to be honest with you, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. I think he does menacing pretty well, though. I mean, for for something that he doesn't normally play. I think it's usually, well, yeah, because, you know, Robin Williams is also somebody that we talked about with the one-hour photo, someone who's traditionally a comedic actor. Mm-hmm. Their comedic leanings, you know, can lead into them being very good at being menacing and foreboding because, you know, we know them as the happy-go-lucky guys. And then when you watch them kind of go from like, <laughs> yeah, then like and then to snap into being crazy and angry, it makes it, you know, pretty jarring like oh shit yeah you you definitely get a jarring it's like seeing leslie you're like wow i've never really seen leslie nielsen like this and so it's weird to see him like this because you're you're thinking of him and being a comedic person gonna crack a bunch of jokes or at least be like dry wit um and you don't get that at all from this and so it sort of takes you out of your element of seeing him there i've always um 
thought it interesting when you watch a movie and you always recognize the people that are in it. And it sort of feels comforting to you that you recognize people that are in this movie. Um, and that this is actually the opposite of that. So when you see Leslie Nielsen, you're comforted by seeing him, that you know him, you like him. He's a most of the time a funny person. And in this case, he is playing the exact opposite. And that's sort of adds a different level to how you view this, this short story. So probably my favorite of the creep show short stories. Yeah, I agree with all those points. Definitely my favorite. Probably the most memorable for me too. All right. Just because the, the, them coming back as like seaweed revenants, Ted Danson and uh, yeah. his lover, that looked pretty cool. Yeah, they have good effects and nice squishy sound. And, you know, you hear like the bullet, you know, the bullet like fire into them. It's just like, and then just how like Leslie Nielsen meets his fate, and he's being stubborn and obstinate. Like oh, I can hold my breath. <laughs> yeah. The tide's coming in on him, which I was like, was very curious about. You as an English person, you should be very upset. He was yelling that line, and then we see the comic panel. It's just I can hold my breath. Without the enunciation? Yeah, yeah, just an ellipsis afterwards. Not an exclamation point, just an ellipsis. Okay. He was clearly shouting. He's shouting it, man. Yeah. You're right. Very um, disconcerting. You know what? That's taking a point off the film for that. You're taking one point off grammar. <laughs> uh, the next short in the film, and I think it's the longest. Feels like Feels it. Feels like the longest. It's called The Crate. And this is a, like I said, I I think it feels the longest. I don't know for sure that it it is actually the longest, but I think it feels the longest because it tries to navigate between two different plot lines. I think it's almost like a half hour long. Yeah. Because I I was a little checking kind of on the times and it was like, it started like at the hour mark and didn't get over to almost an hour and a half. Yeah, I think um, the reason that it feels so long is because it has to navigate between the two um, characters that are the main characters in it. There's So there's the professor character who is... Well, they're all professors. Well, yeah. But there's... Um, this is Stephen King's you want take. Me, you want me to get on, more specific then? Yes. I would say this is Stephen King's take on the intelligentsia of <laughs> the New England area. Before it was the rich hoity-toys, now we're dealing with the intelligentsia of New England. So there's Dexter Stanley... Awful name. Better for you. Dexter Stanley actually um, seems to be like a name that I w- you would expect from a H.P. Lovecraft story. So I feel like that may be what, um, he is going what for. he's going for here. Because this is a, a very Lovecraftian story in terms of um, the unexpected and the unexplained. And you, you like can't let it go. Like your curiosity of being a scholar... Uh, forces you to understand what's in the crate. So I felt like that was a, a reference to H.P. Lovecraft. So that's probably the reason for the name. Um, but it involves Dexter, Dexter Stanley, who actually finds this crate in... Uh, no, the janitor does. Well, the janitor does. Yeah, well, let, let's give the janitor credit for this. Yeah. Mike, Mike. Janitor Mike. <laughs> Mike the janitor. If this was to be remade today, we'd all know who'd be playing that janitor. be Danny Trejo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we got uh, Mike the Janitor finds the crate in a uh, classroom and uh, under the stairwell. Which, by the way, 
Is this like in the basement of the college? Because it looks so grimy and nasty. Like all the walls are just like smattered with like crap on it. This stairwell has for some reason a grate over it and it's just covered in cobwebs. I don't know. I don't know where it is. It's not really. Um... Well, it's in a college hall. Yeah. Anderson or Amberson Hall, but I mean, like, it's just like when you look at it, it's like, it can't be just because, like, well, it's the 80s, green, gray concrete walls with smatterings of dirt all over it. Yeah, I don't know where it is, but uh, they find the crate, they open the crate, they realize that there is a fucking massive monkey like thing that's a Yeti. Yeah, some sort of Yeti that has um, a hunger for blood. Yeah, and and not only that, it's been in there for what one hundred and forty-seven years or something like that. Yeah. So it's been kept in there and without food for that long. Which, and, with its supernatural strength, how did it not break out? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question about how that works throughout the whole thing. There's a really funny scene where um, Henry's going to try to lock the crate um, after he's fed his wife to it, and He's like carefully putting a uh, little a, padlock, yeah, padlock on it, like because he doesn't want to wake the beast. And it's like, yeah, that padlock is like not going to do anything if if really well, the, the way beast... he was tearing tearing ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that padlock's not really going to do much of anything. But but it's funny because the film treats it just like yeah, sure, whatever. Well, the whole padlocked work. Padlocks work. No problem. Maybe it's uh maybe maybe it can't like burst through silver or something like that, like a vampire. I don't know. Yeah, well, it is kind of like a lichen. Yeah. But the two the two main storylines is that you know you have Dexter Stanley who finds the um the creature and wants to try to get rid of it, and then you have Henry who is sick of his wife, played by Adrian Barbeau, and because she's such an overbearing bitch. I got a feeling uh, Stephen King wrote this for Henry to be John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be. <laughs> Who was married to Adrian Barbeau at the time. So yeah. Yeah, I can just be, you know, just on set of like a different movie, just hearing Kyle say, John! John! And he's just like, ugh, just want to smoke my cigarettes and drink my whiskey. It's played up very well by Adrian Barbeau. Uh, Her she does hair it. is atrocious in this. It's like she, the worst of the eighties. The nice ring locks, like per yeah. per mullet. Ugh. She does a really good job of being an absolute bitch in this. Um, not only like a scene at the party, like everyone's like, "Oh my god, can you just shut up?" And she's just constantly like going on and on and on. And, and on. there's that great scene too, where Henry imagines that he pulls out a gun and, and shoots she, her at the party, and everybody just starts clapping like, like golf claps. Bullseye! Great shot. That's a really good shot. Yeah. It's a fun, like, again, that's another, like we said, something to tide you over, not super funny. The crate definitely has its moments where it goes full-on comedy. Um, the, uh, most of the time when you see those those flash sideways of, of Henry imagining him killing his wife in numerous ways. So you have the him shooting her, you have her him grabbing his tie and uh, strangling her with it. Um all of these are great, and again, these are scenes where you as the viewer are also like, clap, clap, clap. Thank God she's gone. Um, but eventually, the only thing that occurs is that Henry gets the idea that since there's this crate with his beast in it, might as well feed Wilma to it. So instead of me actually doing the, the, 
the dirty work. I'm going to just feed it to this beast and get rid of her. I love the, the obscene note he writes to her about why she has to go down to the... <laughs> just the, uh, the most ridiculous note of... Like, uh, this poor girl's possibly been beaten to death or something. And she's like, oh my god, what? I gotta go check. And she's pouring, like, the world's shittiest white Russian of just, like, milk and vodka in a glass. Then she's dropping down... To the campus and s- comes out of the car, drinks still in hand, like, oh, God, I gotta make sure I have a good drink, you know, while seeing this. This poor girl who's possibly been raped, beaten, and murdered the way Henry's making it sound. Yeah, no, the weird thing about that, too, is that, like, she seems almost giddy to go see it. Well, because she loves gossip. I know she does, but that's that's a really strange thing to be... I guess so. No one cares. She was like, she's like, better her than me. She's like, I can't believe it. Dexter has just raped and murdered a woman. I can't wait to see the damage. And then Henry also, when he meets her, she probably would take like, oh, we get to clean this up. Yeah, get to clean this up. Henry, when he meets her too, is like, you'll never believe it. She's she's moaning underneath the stairwell. She's not dead yet, and she's just like, oh my god, I better go check it out. I've always liked the crate just for its over the top nature. It's it's a it's a ridiculous story all around. Again, a lot like Father's Day and in, in the ways that it plays out in the the vengeance in it. And uh but it has its moments too. Like I really like the cinematography in it and the, the lighting. Um because like I said, and I mentioned it in the beginning of this episode in the intro, uh they're attacked by the beast in the crate and then all of a sudden the lighting changes from just normal basement lighting to red and blue. Get that too as soon as they open the crate. As soon as Mike and uh, the one uh, Dexter open the crate, it goes like blood red, and you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know something's coming. Whenever if that happens to you when you're opening a box, run. You know, like a Christmas story, and you just won potentially a bowling alley. <laughs> run. Yeah. There's a there's a beast in that box. Um, but the crate, I think, is a fun fun uh, story. Again, not my favorite, um, but I think it's probably one of my favorites. Um, although, I again, I think it's a little bit too. It runs a little too long. It feels too long. I think because of the amount of um, story that it does tell, and especially because of all those flash sideways sequences of showing how Henry's gonna wants to kill his wife, um, adds a bit of running time. Uh, I it's weird, but I appreciate when uh, the anthology films have the same running time for each of their stories. It's a weird little. Uh, it makes it feel like a TV episode. It does, like, yeah. You know, like everything. It's the same standard it, cut time. And I think the crate just runs a little too long on that. But other than that, it's a, it's a another fun short from there. The last short that we get is uh, about cockroaches. And if it, you hate bugs, like especially cockroaches, this one's gonna scare the shit out of you. It's a creepy crawly little uh, little segment, I think. Um, I can only imagine what it was like for them to shoot like all the scenes with all the fucking like the mass amounts of cockroaches. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, this one's called "They're Creeping Up on You," and they're it's 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 a sort of a futuristic sh- sci-fi. Esque um, storyline, not something that we get much in Creep Show, but there's uh, it's like a weird um, 
cops. The guy who's trapped in an apartment and, <laughs> and escaped from New York is. <laughs> yeah, he's like working on some sort of scientific discovery, and he's no, he's a business dealer. Is he? Yeah, is those, that what it is? Yeah, that's sto- the, those are stock numbers. There, oh, the stock numbers. Yeah, okay. no, he's he, and he's just. He working on stocks takes uh, yeah takes other people's businesses and stuff from he's like a just a venture capitalist. Gotcha. That's why that one guy you know kills kills himself. himself yeah. But um, no, it's his whole setup's because he's a germaphone phobe. So yeah, so he's concerned. It's not futuristic. About... He's just got the money to have. It looks it. like it. Yeah. yeah, it does make it seem like it's this like really futuristic, like with the '80s thinking twenty years. <laughs> what you know. Especially like the door, uh, doorknob area, the doorbell when they're answering, and he's got like the little peephole, and it gives them sort of like robotic voices because they're mm. looking through this little peephole that apparently keeps most people out. I don't know. Um. So E.G. Marshall plays Upson Pratt. What a name, Upson Pratt. And uh, he's a. Uh, Really, a, a giant asshole in this film. He's Scrooge. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, he's almost like um, Curly from the Three Musketeers with that hair, but also as Scrooge, who is like just such a miserly asshole who thinks that everybody owes him everything. Um, it's even close to dropping the N word at some points here, in terms of oh, like, that's great. Oh, so, and, you're and colored. Not so subtle racism. You're, you're colored. You'll make it well in your job because you're colored. Yeah. You know, Actually, he does say person of color, but it's yeah. pretty, it's still pretty racist in here. Yeah. And I do like – I mean I, I like that because you can see like – that just, again, well, gives he doesn't, more he doesn't, say, he doesn't use person of color when, you know, he's not knocking on his door like to help him out. He's used to saying other things. Yeah, person of color just jumps out when he's actually at the door. Yeah. Um, I, I do like this one because he is just such an asshole and you throughout the whole thing, you're really actively rooting against him. Um, and it's a, again, another really simple element to it that this germaphobe is then ram, uh, rampaged by uh, cockroaches throughout his entire apartment. There's not much more to it than that. Um, I do love the idea when, uh, the black doorman, Mr. White, comes up and he's like, well, we're going to try to get a hold of the only, you know, the only exterminating uh, service that's open 24-7. Because if you think about it, like, really, like, what exterminating service is open 24-7? Right. He's yeah. like, yeah, I tried to think about it and like I can like only one. come up with one at, that's open at 1130 at night. Yeah. yeah. Um, As he's constantly pers- – I mean, granted, if I had cockroaches running all over my apartment like that, I would be like, yeah, get them fucking over here, you know. Yeah, I think this this uh, short is really good about the panic that would be involved with seeing just hundreds of cockroaches pouring out of your walls, um, because that would be really disconcerting. Uh, I mean, one or two, yeah, you're like, fuck, this is really an, an annoyance, and you'd smack them, and then you'd be done with it. And so that's sort of how the film, the sh- segment starts off. But then afterwards, you start to see that they have kind of proliferated in their not just in one or two areas. They're they're starting to get more and more um, prevalent throughout the the apartment. And he does have a great line when he says, like, you know, once you have, like, one of them, you're going to have them forever because they infest, you know, in, into the conduits everywhere, into the heart of your buildings. And, yeah. You know, and then you can't get rid of them. And it's almost like a metaphor for his own heart. <laughs> um, 
and then so you have that and then also there's a really effective scene where he's making like this uh granola or whatever. I don't like, know what it is that he's eating. In a food processor. Yeah, in a food yeah, processor. It's weird. I didn't know. I don't know the, what it is. Like bran flakes or granola or something yeah, like that. Yeah, why is he food processed? I didn't get it. You know? I don't. I don't know what it is either. But he processes it up and then he goes to check it out because it tastes funny and he's he finds like parts of cockroaches in his food and then pours out the bran flakes and there's a bunch of them that come pouring on out. That's a great great scene. That's really a gross out scene for people who don't like bugs. Um. But yeah, this, it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. Yeah, there's just so many. Um, this would be a really tough uh, segment to film. I mean, just because it's clear that they did not use like fake bugs. I mean, they're they're all real cockroaches, and some cockroaches were harmed in the making of this movie for sure. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of splattered cockroaches, smashed cockroaches, spraying them Spr- like right spray. on, like right on them, just sprayed cockroaches. Those poor cockroaches. Those were acting cockroaches. <laughs> you know what? They were just trying to make a break. They all had their SAG card. George Romero hit the casting couch with those. In <laughs> um, that final scene, too, of all the cockroaches just kind of pouring out of uh, Upson Pratt, they, they, As they burrowed infested into his, his yeah. body. That's awesome. That's a great scene. Yeah, really well done. Tom Savini did a really good job. You know, getting the body to be able to open up in certain points for the bugs to come out. You know what I really like a lot is um, actually they did this to E.G. Marshall, but they show there's um, a, a cockroach that's burrowing out of his face. Mm-hmm. And there's just like this single solitary line of blood that starts. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good shot. It's like – And you can see one in the top of his forehead yeah, just, that, didn't, that didn't come out. But you think like it's going to break through his head, you yeah. know, his yeah. brain, but it doesn't. That's a really good – moment and a really good scene that they shot there um that's surprising in its effectiveness for the time with the with the gore effects i think they did a really good job of that um i would say this probably has the best gore effects out of all the yeah probably yeah and just the sheer amount of like how difficult it would be to film this Especially at the end, the whole the whole fucking room's covered. You know? <laughs> so that's you know the cleanup crew were not happy afterwards about <laughs> trying to rub rope down uh, all the rest of the cockroaches. Ten thousand cockroaches. Yeah. Probably a closed set, I would assume. Um. So yeah, this is a this is another fun one. I I like this one quite a bit. I think it's probably one of my favorites. It also I think is one of the shortest ones. It seems like it's probably shorter than most of the other ones. Probably a little under twenty minutes. Yeah, I think it is. Because it and starts just, at like a buck forty, and so it ends. Yeah, and just because I think it's just, again just because of the simplism of it, you don't want to overstay your welcome with it. You don't want to keep going with just having him see more, more and more bugs that we get boring fast. So. Um, Definitely just kind of gets in, gets out, grosses and grosses out its uh, audience and runs with it. All right, so we did the five sh- uh, the five segments throughout uh, Creep Show. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we give this thing a rating? How do you think Tom Spini's gore overall was? Um, I think he does a good job. I don't think that the I don't think a Creep Show. In particular, is super gory. It's more about the well, uh, I mean, the effects, effects I mean, really. I should, I should, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that he does a good job with some of the um, the zombie effects, and I think that they're done on purpose to be to sort Camp, of match, like and look a little campy. Yeah, too. and look a little campy. They're not meant to be um, 
specifically like realistic. Uh, I think the Father's Day zombie is probably the best one. I think because of the way that the skeleton looks and and uh, things the like decay, that. The the, yep, yeah. the decay, the maggots that they put on there. Um, I think all of those are probably the the best uh, designed. Um, but I think all of it is really good. Uh, I don't think they skimped out. But again, they're designed to be a little bit cheesier uh, on purpose. So it's not it's not about the gore per se as it is the campiness of the film. What did you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's definitely very good. You know, especially because it's not trying to be overly gory, but it's it, the moments where there is supposed to be gore, it's utilized well. Looks good. Um, I think mean, he did a really good job on the effects. Definitely very believable and very enjoyable to look at. I think the thing that stood out to me the most about the film was just the lighting that we had. With them being able to match like how a comic book, an EC Comics book looked is uh, pretty impressive. And I think that aesthetic just adds a lot, to, even more so than just like the paneling that you get throughout the, the uh, shots of them like going from like later to earlier and stuff like that. Um, I think that the, the lighting itself is really what makes this film so in, in interesting and gives it that comic book feel. I really like the transitions. Mm-hmm. Like those comic book transitions where like every like every time they do it, it's like it's like a page turn and you get like in the corner like like maybe like a meanwhile or like later yeah, on. Yeah, see a little couple of ads yeah. there. There's a there's a Christmas ad in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that one. But so. even during just like the main story is like when like you have like uh, you'd see like you know like a transition from one part of the scene to the next part of the scene in that story, and you'd get like the nice like page turn and it'd be like meanwhile or later on. Nice effect. I like that, you know. Yep. Yep. I really like the fact that they embraced the theme of what they were going for, of it being a horror comic book. Yeah. All right, so um, on a scale of 0 to 10, Tom Atkins, toupees. <laughs> Though we don't know if it's really a toupee. You'll have to ask him yourself. Yeah. What would you give Creepshow? Give it an 8 out of 10. It's a very good film. It's one that I've always enjoyed. Kind of watch like once every two years, three years. Um, it's not my favorite Romero film, but it's definitely one that's very good, very enjoyable. I think all the stories are enjoyable, though some of them do, as Ryan said, get a little long in the tooth because they're all, they're all very simple concepts. So you know they all for a two. It definitely probably could have been shortened down a little bit. But I think everyone did a terrific job acting. You know, you got some big names in here, and you got some unknown people. It's great seeing, like, cameos from Tom Savini and Stephen King. You know, just Stephen King alone is worth coming to watch this movie because he's so just enjoyably coked up and delightful. Um, Effects are great. I think the cinematography is very interesting. I think out of all the Romero films, this might be one of the best shot films on him by him. Um, it's probably up there with Day of the Dead and his most visually interesting film. So I definitely think this is a great anthology film. But it's definitely worth the wait. Watch, definitely worth checking out. There's a reason why it's thirty years later. It's held up. Yeah, we give it an eight out of ten as well. I think it's really good. Um, Creepshow is actually one that I haven't seen that many times. I've seen it a few times, but not something that I kind of uh, re- recurrently watch. Um, but I do think that it's a really fun film, and I 
this time around, I really did appreciate some of the elements that I might not have noticed too much on previous watches, um, like the lighting, um, some of the the campiness of it, um, the gore effects, Tom Savini being in it, uh, even recognizing that Joe King was in it. It's kind of fun because you can see, you know, Stephen King throwing a lot of things in from his own life uh, into this film. Um, so I think they do a good job with all of it. Lots of names in here. Everybody does a really good job. Standouts being um, probably Leslie Nielsen, um, maybe Ted Danson as well, in, the, in both that sh- in the same short. Um, Adrian Barbeau doing a really good job there too. Um, and you just get a, a really fun, uh, kind of spooky, kind of funny um, anthology film uh, to watch with friends, laugh about, um, and enjoy. It's a, it's a great time all around. And I definitely think seeing this on Blu-ray remastered definitely enhances all those visual effects and the lighting. Um, just seeing it now for the first time on the Blu-ray, I'm kind of having a hard time thinking of... I mean, I knew the, you know, know the lighting's pronounced, but like it's very vibrant now. And I think that just adds to it. Yeah, it definitely stands out quite a bit. It's... um. It's amazing how vibrant it is in some scenes. Yeah. All right. Creep show. Very fun. Would um, you say this is one of Romero's best shot films? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, and most visually interesting. Yeah, visually interesting, aesthetically pleasing. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely one where he went above and beyond mm-hmm. to uh match comic books. Yeah. Um and with that said, um, we move on to the next. That's right. We move on to the next, the next film story. in, in Halloween. We're still in the 80s for this one. Because Ryan spoiled it last time. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So you probably, you know what it is, obviously. But uh, we're doing the Twilight Zone, the movie. By Jordan, uh, by Peel? By Jordan Peel. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, this is uh, infamously the one where people were killed when making it. Thank God it wasn't John Lithgow. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we'll be back next week with the Twilight Zone, the movie. We're going to do that one. So we'll still be in the 80s. Uh, so keep your hair permed and your bell bottom. Uh, well, not bell bottoms, really. No, because by, uh, by the 80s, by that time, it was probably so out. 84, 85, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So not not, not that time. But, uh, no, I mean, I can fix his hair by that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll be back with that. So uh, stick around for Halloween. Like we said, uh, make sure you check out J Movie Talk podcast. We are doing a uh, an episode on Phantasm Two over there. So hopefully you can have a listen to that. Um, and you can find us on any uh, podcasting uh, app that you use. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Any of those you can find us on. Uh, subscribe to us and give us a nice review. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. We're on Twitter at blood and black rum. And uh, we have an email address at blood and black rum podcast at gmail.com. You can also donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash blood and black rum podcast. Keep our podcast going with all of your donations. And we really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening to our uh, episodes for this Halloween season. We hope you return for the Twilight Zone, the movie. Take care.